Let's open our Bibles tonight to 2 Kings. We're going to look at the fourth chapter tonight. At the end of 1 Kings, we saw the, the ministry of Elijah. And now as we get into 2 Kings, and, and really beginning here in verse 4 through the end of uh, verse 8, and, and really the first couple of verses of chapter 9, we're going to see the ministry of Elisha the prophet, the, the predecessor of, uh, or the successor of Elijah. And, um, and then uh, read around chapter 13, we're, going to hear, we're not going to hear anything more of Elisha uh, from the ninth chapter really until the 13th chapter where we learn of this dialogue that he has with the king of Israel, and then he dies. Uh, he, he gets sick. The Bible doesn't tell us what was wrong with him, but he, he dies and he passes from the scene. And so uh, let's take a look at the, the first uh, seven verses of this, and then we're going to, um, because the way this chapter is, is worked out is... You know, verses 1 through 7 really speaks of one specific event, one of the miracles of Elisha and him ministering to uh, the people in Israel. And then verses 8 down through uh, 37, uh, we see another section where he is uh, performing miracles. And then uh, verses 38 through uh, 41... We see another miracle, and then um, verses 42 through 44, another miracle. So in total, about five miracles uh, take place in this chapter. And, and some have said, if you remember, when Elijah went, uh, ascended into heaven in that whirlwind, that Elijah told Elisha that if he saw that event and was present when that happened, that God would grant him the petition that he had. And his petition was that he would have a, a double portion of Elijah's anointing as a prophet. And uh, some have taken in hand to, to look at the miracles of Elijah and Elisha, and certainly it's recorded for us that Elisha did more miracles than Elijah. And, um, and, and it really doesn't matter uh, in, the, in the sense, it's really just... Um, um, it's just something to consider uh, because God answered Elisha's prayer and his heart was in such a place where it was soft and tender uh, toward God and, and God really loves tender hearts. And uh, it's important today that we seek to have a tender heart because if you're like me, I look around at all the difficulties in the world and I see the things that drive me crazy um, I can tend to get a hard heart. And the Bible tells us that in the last days, the love of many will grow cold. The agape of many will grow cold. And I don't believe that that is for the world. I, I, I don't think the world, apart from the Spirit of God, you don't have agape love. It's only when we are the born-again believers, the real Christians, the ones who have the Spirit of God indwelling us, I don't believe that anybody else can have that agape love. Because God gives that love. It's a self-sacrificing love. It's a benevolent love. It's a love that's totally other-centered and totally for doing everything for the benefit of someone else, not themselves. But in the world, we don't see that. It's all about me, and it's all about you know me, myself, and I, and the pride of man. And so it behooves us to take uh, examine our hearts, as it says in the Proverbs, you know, um, uh, keep your heart, or literally guard it with all diligence, for from it come forth the issues of life. And it's true, and it's something that we got to guard over more than ever. And uh, tonight I stand before you, as guilty as anybody, uh, of, of not guarding it enough. And I would ask you to pray for me, and I'd ask you to pray for all the leaders in the church, not just the leaders and the, the pastors and the elders here in this fellowship, but just all the pastors in this state, in this country, that they would, be, they would have the softest hearts, that they would be hearing from God, that we would all be hearing from God, that we'd be prophesying, that we would be rightly dividing the word of truth and being examples. And folks, I don't know if you know this, but, uh, and not to elevate any person, okay, 
But uh, as Christians and, and, and leaders, Christian leaders, whether they are elders or pastors or a senior pastor, there is a target on you as believers. There's a target. If, you, if you're not familiar with spiritual warfare, um, then, then you will be, <laughs> especially if you walk with the Lord. But it is a very real thing, and, the, and, the, and the, the more visible you are, the more authority God gives you, the greater the, um, the target you have on your back. And so pray for Christian leaders in this country that we would do the right thing, that we honor God in all that we do, that we'd be worshipers, that we would, be, um, we would have the softest hearts. The Bible calls us to, all of us, to be as gentle as doves, uh, uh, but wise as serpents. That doesn't mean that as a Christian you have to roll over and, and act like nothing is happening. No, you use all of your faculties. Come to God with all of your knowledge. It's okay. He's not intimidated by your degrees. He's not intimidated by your, your understanding of knowledge. If you've amassed a lot of knowledge and think you're really something, and if you think you're really smart, well, he's smarter than you are. <laughs> and he knows you. He knows what you're thinking before you even think it. And so, please be in prayer about that. But Elisha, his heart was a soft and tender heart. And, and so let's just read the first seven verses. Notice what it says. A certain woman of the wives of the sons of the prophets cried out to Elisha, saying, Your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that your servant feared the Lord. And the creditor is coming to take away or take my two sons to be his slaves. And so Elisha said to her, What shall I do for you? Tell me, what do you have in the house? And she said, Your maidservant has nothing in the house but a jar of oil. <clears throat> Excuse me. And then he said, Go borrow vessels. Notice, borrow vessels from everywhere, from all your neighbors, empty vessels. Do not gather just a few. And when you have come in, you shall shut the door behind you and your sons, and then pour into all those vessels and set aside the full ones. And so she went from him and shut the door behind her and her sons. She had two sons who brought the vessels to her, and she poured it out. Now it came to pass when the vessels were full that she said to um, her son, bring me another vessel. And he said to her, there is not another vessel. And so the oil ceased. And then she came and told the man of God, and he said, Go, sell the oil, and pay your debt, and you and your son shall live on the rest. Pretty interesting uh, thing what God does here. And God is always very, um, he loves orphans and widows. Throughout the scripture, you'll see that God has a special place in his heart for orphans and widows. Orphans because they have no head over them. They have no father. And, and certainly widows because they've lost their head. They've lost their, their husband. They've lost their, um, the authority over, or in, in their house. And people in those conditions are the most vulnerable to be taken advantage of. And God makes sure that these people, orphans and widows specifically, are especially taken care of. And it's something that we need to in the church always be aware of. We have orphans and we have widows and we need to take care of them. If their family can't take care of them, we want to do the best we can as a body to help them. And so these are things to consider. But notice back in verse 1, um, I'd like you to underline three words in verse 1. You'll notice that in verse 1 it says, a servant, my servant, uh, your servant, my husband. Underline servant. Underline, underline the next word that says servant. And then finally, underline the word slaves at the end of the verse. Because all those in the Hebrew are the same word. They're all the same word. And we'll get to that. And so Elijah, he had started this school of prophets in, in Gilgal, we believe in Bethel, and also in uh, Jericho. And, and so this certain woman of the wives of the sons of the prophets, she cried out saying, your, your servant, my husband is dead, and you know your servant feared the Lord, and the creditors are coming to take my two sons to be slaves. And again, these two words, servant and slaves, are the same Hebrew word, as I said, and they, they mean a bondman or a bondman or a servant, but also a slave. And the, and the woman obviously did not want her two sons to 
have to be slaves to pay off her husband's debt. How many of you would like that? You know, if, you're, if you're, your husband all of a sudden dies, and in our country, uh, a lot of credit card companies, if your husband has a credit card debt, when he dies, the debt is forgiven, I believe, unless they've changed those things. But um, back at this time, a debt was a debt, and they had to pay it. But, and we don't know the particulars about this woman's situation, but it's possible that the creditor may have been seeking to make her two sons slaves instead of hired servants per the law of Moses. And you may be asking yourself, what are you talking about? Well, as we read in Leviticus, we'll see that there's a difference between a slave and a hired servant. Turn with me, if you would, to Leviticus chapter 25. This will be really quick. Leviticus chapter 25. And this just helps understand a little bit of the predicament that she's in. And again, not to spend a great deal of time here, but it's worth looking at because you may be wondering, well, is there a difference between a slave and a hired servant? I believe there is. Because in verse 1, as I said, both words that say servant and slave mean the same thing. But we're going to notice in Leviticus chapter 25, Verse 39, notice what it says. It says, And if one of your brethren, and this is speaking to the Jews, if one of your brethren who dwells by you becomes poor and sells himself to you, you shall not compel him to serve as a slave. Notice the derogatory connotation of slave. You shall not compel him to serve as a slave, but here is how he's supposed to be treated, as a hired servant. And it's a totally different Hebrew word from slave that we read in verse 39 and also in the first verse of our text this evening. So a hired servant, but you're supposed to, you're not to compel him to serve as a slave. As a hired servant and a sojourner, he shall be with you and shall serve you until the year of Jubilee. And then he shall depart from you, he and his children with him, and shall return to his own family He shall return to the possession of his fathers, for they are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold as slaves, notice, and you shall not rule over them with rigor, meaning with harshness or severity, but you shall fear the Lord your God. And it's a completely different word. But notice that in the situation here in in chapter 4, back in our text now, go back to uh, 2 Kings 4. That the woman makes it clear by the choice of the word she's using, she's using the, 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 more, the more derogatory term slave, which is somebody that could be purchased like a, like a possession. And, and not necessarily were they treated harshly, but they, they could be passed on from, uh, from family. You know, it, it would, if, if the family, the elder died, he, the, that father's um, slaves that he has purchased, meaning Gentiles or others, Canaanites or whatever, those individuals were passed down to the family. And most of the time, this worked out fine because these people were working, they were provided for, and it wasn't like the, the horror stories that we read about in Africa and in years past where uh, slaves were beaten and, and in these kinds of things. This was not necessarily that kind of thing at all. In fact, I don't know if you know this, and this may shock you, but all of you are slaves, including myself. You know why? Because you work for somebody. <laughs> You work for somebody, and the creditors in your bank are your, (laughs) they own you, don't they? And so you work to pay them back. And so in a sense, we're all slaves. But even more importantly, I'm a slave to Christ. Isn't that what Paul said? I'm a slave to him. And I love the fact that I can be a slave to Christ, and he treats me very well. And I'm glad to be a servant, a slave to Christ. But she uses this word, and there is a difference. And so Elisha said to her, verse 2, What shall I do for you, being this the case? Tell me, what do you have in your house? And she said, Your maidservant has nothing in the house but a jar of oil. And again, God has a special place in his heart for widows. And James, uh, the Lord's half-brother, he said this in James chapter 1, verse 27. He said, Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. So people can say all they want, but if they don't care for other people, especially orphans and widows, your religion is pretty vain. It's pretty empty if you're not willing to help those who are in those predicaments. Now, as we get to verse 3, I'd like for you to underline certain phrases in verse 3. Underline, go, 
Borrow vessels from everywhere, from all your neighbors, empty vessels. Do not gather just a few. Underline that whole thing. If you're willing, you don't have to do anything, but I want to show you something here, and we'll get into it. And then down in verse 6, do the same thing. Look down in verse 6, and it'll uh, underline this phrase. Bring me another vessel. And then later in that verse, underline, there is not another vessel, so the oil ceased. Underline that phrase, those two phrases as well, and we'll get to that. So Elisha says to her, then he said, go borrow vessels from everywhere, from your neighbors, empty vessels, don't gather just a few. In other words, gather as many as you can and bring them to your house. And when you have come in, you shall shut the door behind you and your sons. So it was going to be a private thing between the mom and her two sons with all of these vessels in the house and then this little thing of oil, all that she had. And I love that, that God says, now you go in your house with your two sons and shut the door. Nobody else needs to see this. This is something that God is going to do for you, and he's going to blow your mind, and he's going to help you. Why? Because not only does he care about a widow, but God is just a good God. And here's this, this, this woman who has great needs. And her sons might not be that old either, so maybe they aren't really in the place of being able to you know, I don't, I don't know that they were teenagers. It doesn't really tell us their age. But I think we'll see. Um, actually, uh, never mind that. <laughs> so, notice. So, oil in the scripture we know is symbolic of the Holy Spirit. Especially as it is often poured out on individuals for anointing. And we see this in the Old Testament. In Psalm 133, uh, verses 1 and 2, it says, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head, running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron, running down on the edge of his garments. And so that's how Aaron was anointed with oil, and it speaks of the Holy Spirit. And I, I believe that picture was not only for anointing, but we're going to see that as we go along, even in Exodus uh, 29, uh, beginning in verse 5, when Aaron and his sons were consecrated, it says this, Then you shall take the garments, put the tunic on Aaron and the robe of the ephod, the ephod and the breastplate, and gird them with the intricately woven band of the ephod. You shall put the turban on his head and put the holy crown on the turban. And you shall take the anointing oil and pour it on his head and anoint him. Again, uh, another anointing of oil, and uh, speaking of, uh, in a sense, and I believe that was the whole point of the whole thing, was just symbolic of the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And certainly we see in the New Testament, in Matthew chapter 3, when Jesus was um, baptized by John, it says in Matthew 3.16 that when Jesus had been baptized, he came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. Speaking of the dove and the, and the Holy Spirit, and then in Acts, we see also this idea of the Holy Spirit coming upon like the oil of the Old Testament. We see that in on the, on the day of Pentecost, when, the, when it says that uh, there appeared uh, on the disciples in the upper room divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And so this oil, God brings the oil, and they're empty. They don't have anything. They got one little thing of oil, and they got a creditor that's on, our, on his way to put his son into, her two sons into slavery. And then after he takes away her sons, then she doesn't have anything, anybody to help her to gather food and do those things, which sons, as they would grow, they would mature and do those things. And so she's going to be in a really bad predicament. Hopefully she's got really good family. Hopefully they're still alive. So she went in, verse 5, and shut the door behind her and her sons, and who brought vessels to her, and she poured it out. Now it came to pass, when the vessels were full, that she said to her son, Bring me another vessel. And I had you underline that, because, and he said to her, There is not another vessel. And so the oil ceased. And um, if more vessels were available, the oil probably wouldn't have ceased. I believe that there's a, there's a lesson here. There's something that the Lord wants to show us here is that as many vessels that could have been brought into that house 
could have been filled. And, and I often wonder, you know, um, you know, we don't know how many vessels the mom and the sons obtained. Did they only go to just a few neighbors? Did they go to only the families in town? Or, or did they really just go out and, and really search out as many as they can? And people are going to be scratching their heads wondering, what are you, what are you doing? And, um, but regardless of how many she brought, it was enough for them. They were able to pay their debt, as we've read already and take care of their needs. And really, that's the main thing. But God was looking out for them, and he's, he's looking out for you as well. Do you know that? Are, are you the sole provider of everything that you do? The job that you do, wasn't it given to you by God? Isn't God sustaining you in your job? And when he decides that you are let go for some reason, is he aware of that before it happens? Does he have something else in plan? He does. He's a good God. You know, I think of the wine miracle at the, in, um, in Cana of Galilee. Remember Jesus' first miracle? They ran out of wine. So Jesus tells the servants to fill up these, these cleansing jars, these big jars. Fill them up with water. Fill them all up with water. And they did. And then Jesus started having them pour out. And there was wine. The water was made into wine, miraculously, when they didn't have anything. I mean, think about that. That's a, that's a pretty significant thing. In 2 Kings chapter 13, actually, why don't you turn there with me? You're not too far away from it. Just turn to 2 Kings 13. We're going to see another interesting thing here because as the woman's faith was, so was her result. In other words, if she would have only brought three jars in and she poured in those three jars and then she tried to pour into something else, the oil would cease. Do you follow what I'm saying? As was her faith, so was her result. And keep that in your mind, because we're going to see the very same principle being meted out in 2 Kings 13. Beginning in verse 14, notice what it says. It says that Elisha had become sick with the illness of which he would die. And then Joash, notice the king of Israel, came down to him and wept over his face and said, O my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and their horsemen. And Elisha said to him, Take a bow and some arrows. And so he took himself a bow and some arrows. And then he said to the king of Israel, But your hands, uh, put your hands on the bow. And so he put his hand on it. And Elisha put his hands on the king's hands. And he said, Open the east window. And he opened it, and then Elisha said, shoot, and he shot. And he said, the arrow of the Lord's deliverance and the arrow of deliverance from Syria. For you, sh you must strike the Syrians at Aphek till you have destroyed them. And then Elisha said to him, now take the arrows. And so he took them. And he said to the king of Israel, strike the ground. And so he struck the ground three times and stopped. And the man of God, notice, was angry with him. And said, you should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck Syria till you have had destroyed it. But now you will strike Syria only three times. And so as was his faith, as was his zeal, that's what he got. That's what he got. And so there's an element of faith here, isn't there? And God wants to encourage our faith today. Because I think as we go on in time... The Lord's going to exercise that faith, perhaps more than we would like. <laughs> and so be prepared. But sometimes we can limit God. And you may be saying to yourself, how can we limit God? Well, we can limit him by our unbelief. Jesus said in Matthew 11, now in the morning... As he, they passed by, they saw a fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter, remembering, because Jesus the prior day had cursed the tree, and now the next day they go and they find that the fig tree dried up by the roots, the roots. And Peter says, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered away. And so Jesus answered and said unto him, Have faith in God. Notice, for assuredly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be removed and cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things which he says will be done, Done, he will have whatever he says. Therefore, I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them and you will have them. 
And see, in America, we, we think, well, I just pray for anything so I can consume it on my lust. And there's scriptures about that. Don't do that. Because when we do that, we ask amiss. We all want the, the bigger house, the nicer car, the, you know, the, the pretty spouse or the handsome spouse, whatever it may be. And, and, and we, we, we ask amiss and we don't receive because we, our hearts aren't right in it. But if you ask something and it's of the Lord, he's going to give it to you. It may not be at this moment. You know, you could, have, you could pray for something that's in his will and you might not see it today. You might not see it tomorrow. You may see it a month from now, a year from now. And that's where the patience comes in. And for you to just continue to pray. Because prayer is a hard thing, isn't it? It ought to be the most simple thing in the world But there is a warfare about prayer, isn't there? The devil doesn't want you to pray. Because it's one of the most powerful things we have in our arsenal is prayer. How many people, how many thousands and millions and hundreds of millions of prayers went up to the Lord to overturn Roe v. Wade? And think about the unlikely time that that was overturned in this administration. Of all the administrations that have ever happened, it happened, in my opinion, probably the most darkest moment in our history. And that's when it happened. Maybe God did that as a way to bring a little bit of spring to our step and going, you know what, now's the time. And it doesn't make sense. The world is saying, no, it can't happen now. It can't, it will not happen now. And God says, oh, it's going to happen because I'm going to make it happen. Because my people have been praying for 50 years, and I'm going to bring it past to pass in the darkest moment of their history. I'm going to do it right now. And he did it. It's history. So prayer is significant. It's something that God wants us to do. And it requires faith. It requires fortitude. Because everything is going to come at you when you go to pray. That's why we have our prayer meetings. That's why I ask you to pray about the school. Pray for your own life, certainly. Pray for the church, the health of the church. Pray that God would open our eyes. Pray that, he would, that we would put away all of the things in our life that are getting in the way of us serving him effectively and putting away the sins that so, so easily beset us and putting away those things that we know are wrong and, and not flirt with them ever again. May God do a new thing. May God do a wonderful thing. I'm begging him to do it. Verse 7, it says, Then she came and she told the man of God about what happened. And he said, Go sell the oil and pay your debt, and and, and you and your sons live on the rest. And, and, And so she trusted in God. Do you trust in God? I said it before earlier, and I'll say it again. We're going to come to a place, I believe, we're going to have to trust God a lot more than we ever have. We're going to. Now, he may give us a reprieve. I don't know. I don't know. But we know, haven't we been talking in Revelation? Haven't we been looking at the end and the things that are coming? And lo and behold, we see those things coming. Can you see them coming? They have been coming. And we've talked about them. I've talked about them. We've read about them. And now they're starting to come to pass. And everybody, even in the church, oh, that's just coincidence. Hey, you better wake up. You better wake up, church. We need to wake ourselves up. God, help us. Do we believe the word of God? Do we even trust him? And again, there's nothing wrong with preparing for disasters and preparing money for a rainy day and for things. All that's, all that's fine and good because even with your preparation or the lack of your preparation, God has a way of touching those things and causing your little nest egg to evaporate. And then what are you going to do? Who are you going to call on? In other countries, they've got it so much better than us because they have nothing And they see miracles because they have no other recourse. They have to cry to God. If he doesn't show up, people die. People don't have food to eat. But in America, not so. We'll just put it on the credit card. When we don't have a means to pay it back. 
We have our safety nets. And again, there's nothing wrong with safety nets. But are we going to trust God? I, I, I wonder how we're going to do if things get really bad. It's just something to pray about. Say, Lord, make my faith bulletproof. That can withstand anything that comes at it. So let's look at verse 8. So now it happened one day that Elisha went to Shunem, where there was a notable woman. This, this a notable woman is really just a woman who is wealthy, a woman of means. And she persuaded him to eat some food. And so it was, as often as he passed by, he would turn in there to eat some food. So just like Elijah, Elisha was very itinerant. He would go to these different schools of the prophets, and he would be on this track, and on his way to going to and from these places, he would stop by this woman in Shunem who was married, and this, this place called Shunem is about five miles south of Mount Tabor. Uh, Mount Tabor is in the upper part of, uh, right to the, literally almost right at the very uh, northern, uh, excuse me, southern tip of the Sea of Galilee going westward. And it's right near, uh, not too far away from Mount Tabor, about five miles. In fact, when we're in Israel and you're standing on Mount Carmel, you can actually see Mount Tabor. It looks like the hump of a camel. And you can see it on a clear day very easily. And so just south of that was where all this occurred. And so this woman, you know, he stops by there, and um, she and her husband are pretty wealthy. And so she said to her husband, Look now, I know that this is a holy man of God who passes by us regularly, and so please let us make a small upper room on the wall and let us put a bed for him there and a table and a chair and a lampstand so it will be... Um, whenever he comes to us, he can turn in there. And, and I think of this, and what an amazing woman this is. You, you know, the, the husband didn't initiate it, and big surprise, right? <laughs> it's always the women. Guys, you'd better wake up. Why is, the, why is your wife the one who wears the spiritual pants in the family? Where are you? Are you playing golf? Are you playing video games? What are you doing with your life? Yes, I'm getting on your case, because I'm going to get on my case where are the men? <laughs> but the woman, she initiates, you know, this guy is a holy man of God, and, and of course they love God. Let's build a house. And I, okay, yeah, let's do that. You know? And so they do. Praise the Lord. And what an amazing act of benevolence. You know, I, I love the fact that this um, woman does this. And it reminded me of a, a passage in Mark's gospel in chapter 10, verse 23. Let me just read it to you. You can write down the reference, Mark 10. Verse 23, it begins there. But it says that Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were astonished at his words. But Jesus answered again and said to them, children, how hard is it for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Think of how interesting that would be. Um, then for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were greatly astonished, saying among themselves, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and he said, With men it's impossible, but not with God. For with God all things are possible. And then Peter said to him, See, we have left all and we have followed you. We've left everything and followed you. And, and Jesus answered and said, and here it is, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels who shall not receive a hundredfold, not, notice, now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions. I love how he sticks that in there lest we get too comfortable. And in the age to come, eternal life. So Elisha had one home, but now this woman, as Jesus shared here, shared here, because of his devotion to God, he's got another home to go to. It belongs to somebody else, but he, as he comes and goes, he's got a place to stay. Think about that as you travel around the country. You know, you go to California, you go down to Florida, and you never have to get into a hotel because you know somebody's down there, and you stay with this person a few days and that person a few days. Next thing you know, your trip is no longer, you know, $8,000. It's only $1,000 because you have houses of brothers and sisters in other places, and they open themselves up to you. And that's what this woman did. Amazing. What a beautiful heart. 
Verse 11, and it happened one day that he came there and he turned into the upper room and lay down there. And then he said to Gehazi, his servant, call this Shunammite woman. And when he had called her, she stood before him and he said to him, uh, said to Gehazi, Elisha said to Gehazi, say now to her, look, you have been concerned. And this idea is to be anxiously careful. You've been anxiously careful uh, with us for all of this care. What can I do for you? Do you want me to speak on your behalf to the king or to the commander of the army? And she answered, I dwell among my own people. You know, it seems that she had a great reverence for the Lord and as a result wanted to do something. He wanted to do something, um, or she wanted to do something she could to be a help and a blessing to God's servant. And it really is wonderful when we see this thing happening in the church. Just people who've got that gift of giving and that heart of hospitality. Because there are many people in this fellowship who have that heart. And, you're no, and you've shown it by proving it. May we all have the same kind of heart. But this is a, interesting because it appears in this verse that Elisha had enough rapport with the king of Israel to approach him on behalf of this woman's needs. And you may be asking, the king of Israel and Elisha? That, that seems like a problem. Uh, 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 one is one way and one is the other. How could they have this rapport? Well, Elisha didn't compromise, but Joash, or the king of Israel, admired him. Even though he didn't like him, probably at times, he admired him. He knew he was a man of God. It reminds me of that proverb in Proverbs 16. It says, when a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. And it's true. What's even more remarkable is that the woman didn't want anything the king had to offer, but was, she was just content with what she had, except that she didn't have a child. She had everything, you know, life, she had everything everybody, you know, anybody could want. She, had, she was wealthy, she and her husband, but she didn't have a son. And as you know, any Hebrew woman who couldn't have a child and have a son was like a, a mark upon her. It was like a scarlet letter. It was a very shameful thing because other women would look, well, God has obviously cursed your womb, woman. And that may not be the truth at all. Some of the most godly women in the Bible were women who were barren and then later in life had children. This woman is going to be one of them. And so he said, what then could be done? What, what, what then is to be done for her? And Gehazi answered, actually, she has no son, and her husband is old. Now, the woman didn't tell Gehazi to tell Elisha this, and, and I find that interesting too. She had such a, have you been around somebody, maybe you're a boss, maybe you're a pastor, or maybe you're a, 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 a owner of a business, and you got somebody who works for you, and they're a little bit hesitant about really being themselves around you, they're kind of gidgety and fidgety, because they, 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 they feel somehow funny around you, and I think this woman... And I think Elisha knew that about her. That's why he didn't go to her or have her come to him initially. He's like, Gehazi, you go get it. She's more likely to open up to you because I'm too much of a distraction for her. And so he does. And, and the woman doesn't tell Gehazi, hey, you know what? I've got everything I need, but I don't have a son. She didn't say that. She just says, I dwell among my own people. In other words, I'm happy, I'm content here. And that was it. But Gehazi knew something that she didn't tell him, and that is she wanted a son. And so, and so Gehazi answered, actually, she has no son, and her, her husband is old. And so this dear woman was in this same predicament as Hannah was in 1 Samuel, the same predicament that Abraham's wife Sarah was in. She was in this same predicament as Elizabeth, John the Baptist's mother. All of these were older women past their time, their prime. And so he called to her, and when she had, and so when he had called her, she stood in the doorway. She didn't even come in the room. That's how just the the reverence that she had for Elisha as a man of God. She didn't presume to just barge in. She, I think, Elisha had more uh, respect than any king on the earth at that time, and for good reason too. And then he said to her, "About this time next year, you shall embrace a son." And she said, No, my Lord, no man of God, do not lie to your maidservant. Is anything too hard for the Lord? 
I mean, we know in theory there isn't anything too hard for the Lord, but you wouldn't know that by sometimes the way we respond to things like this. Turn with me to Genesis 18. Genesis 18. We're just going to look at the first 15 verses quickly. Genesis 18, a passage we know very well. It says, when the, Then the Lord appeared to uh, Abraham by the terebinth trees of Mamre, and as he was sitting in the tent door in the heat of the day, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing by him, and he saw them, and he ran from the tent door to meet them, and he bowed himself to the ground, and he said, My Lord, if, you have found favor in, if, if I have found favor in your sight, do not, pass, um, do not pass on by your servant. Please let a little water be brought, and wash your feet, and rest yourselves under the tree, and I will bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh your hearts. And after that you may pass by, inasmuch as you have come to your servant. And they said, do as you've said. And so Abraham quickly went into the tent uh, to Sarah and said, quickly make three measures of meal and knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd, took a tender and young calf and gave it to the young men. And they hastened to prepare it. And he took the butter and milk and the calf which he prepared. He sets it before them. And then they said to him, where is your wife, Sarah? And he said, here in the tent. And he said, I will certainly return to you according to the time of life. And behold, Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now, at this time, they were very old. <laughs> and, and they're both, and I'm sure when God says this to them, and we believe it's an angel of the Lord. There's three angels here, but one of them, we believe, is a pre-incarnate visitation of Christ because he receives worship, and he calls him Yahweh, Lord, Yahweh, all caps. You'll see that later in the chapter, but... So when Abraham and Sarah were old, they were old well in advance in age, and Sarah had passed the age of childbearing. So therefore, Sarah, when she hears this, she laughs, notice, within herself, saying, after I have grown old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord also being old? In other words, this guy is no, you know, he's not all that anymore, and neither am I. And the... And the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? And remember what it says? It says she laughed within herself. In the other part of the tent where nobody could see, she laughed within herself. She didn't laugh out loud. Why did Sarah laugh? Notice, and the Lord said, Jehovah said to Abram, why did Sarah laugh, saying, shall I, uh, shall I surely bear a child since I am old? Is any, and then he, notice, is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I didn't laugh, for she was afraid. And, and he said, no, but you did laugh. I love that. And did the God browbeat her? Did God, you know, pronounce a curse on her? No, he just exposed and honestly, that could be any one of us because in the natural, and be careful of that because we size things up with our eyes all the time and we say, it can only happen if I can, I will believe it when I see it. And when I see it, then I believe it. But you know what? That's not faith at all. See, I believe God would have us go beyond that and really grow in our faith so that we don't have to necessarily see everything before we believe it's going to happen. That's what faith is. It's the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not yet seen. The evidence means you already know that it's going to happen, but you haven't seen it yet. Because you know in your heart, you've prayed about it, you've talked to the Lord about it, and he gives you that faith and you say, I know it's going to happen, Lord. It's just going to be time. And then he does. He delivers. And many of you have experienced that as well. But we get the natural in front of us, and because that's most of our life, and that's all we really know, we always size things up in the natural, and think, well, God can't do that. And you know what? I pray that God blows our minds. Individually and corporately in this fellowship, in this church, I pray that he blows our minds and our hearts right out into orbit in a good way. And pray for that for your own life. Say, God, increase my faith, because my faith is so small. And God is not upset with a small faith. He can take a little bit of faith and do great things with it. But don't sell him short. He is able. 
You simply ask him, and you know, don't, don't worry about praying small prayers just as much as don't worry about praying, in, you know, totally impossible prayers. Pray the big prayers, too, that just seem way outside of anybody's ability to do. And you pray, and you watch, and see what happens. But you pray in accordance to his will, and there's a secret, too. I pray in his name. I don't pray in my name. I don't pray just so I can amass it for my own lust. No, if, you're, if you're, your prayer is right and it's good, you pray the, the most, in, the thing that, no, that, that could never happen. Think about what would happen. Th- seriously, I just mentioned it earlier. The possibility of Roe v. Wade being overturned in the middle of this Biden administration. Think about it. How did that happen? Millions of prayers. Millions of prayers. God having it up to here. And if you think that God is for abortion, you've got a problem. You've got a real problem if you think God is for abortion. He hates it. Now, if you're a woman here and you've had one in your past and, God has, and you've asked God to forgive you, he's covered it. Don't worry. It's over. That child is in glory. There's no need to, to keep beating yourself up for it because you do sometimes. Maybe you have those things, but God hates it. He hates it, and he is going to deal with it if this country doesn't turn. He's already dealing with us. But I love the glimmer of hope. Right when our candle seems like it's about ready to be extinguished, he goes, watch this. I love it. Do we serve an awesome God? I don't know, do we? We do. We serve an awesome God. He's an awesome God. and He's got great things coming for us. Folks, for us, for the Christians and the believers, the world is going to get darker and darker, but you and I are looking forward to a new kingdom where moth and rust doesn't corrupt. Verse 17, But the woman conceived and she bore a son when the appointed time had come, of which Elisha had told her, and the child grew. And now it happened one day that he went out to his father, to the reaper, so obviously an agrarian society, so he's out there helping his dad, probably a very young kid, and we'll see why, because he, he climbs up on his mother's lap here shortly. And he said to his father, my head, my head. And so he said to his servant, carry him to his mother. And, uh, you know, it's possible he had a sunstroke, or maybe he had an aneurysm in his brain. We don't really know what happened, but it wasn't just a migraine, because migraines don't usually kill people. So when they had taken him and brought him to his mother, he sat on her knees until noon, and then he died. And she went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God, and she shut the door behind him and went out. And then she called for, to her husband and said, please send me one of the young men and one of the donkeys that I may run to the man of God and come back. And so he said, so the husband says, why are you going to him today? It is neither the new moon or the Sabbath. And she said, it is well. He didn't even know that the child had died. The son is up in Elisha's room, in a sense. The woman put him up there and she doesn't even tell her husband. She's like, I'm going after the prophet. I'm going to go talk to him as soon as possible. Her husband's still working out in the field. He has no clue. Then she saddled a donkey and said to her servant, drive and go forward and do not slack the pace for me unless I tell you. And so she departed, went to the man of God at Mount Carmel. Notice that's where he was. So it was when the man of God saw her afar off that he said to his servant Gehazi, look, the Shunammite woman Please run now to meet her and say to her, Is it well with you? Is it well with your husband? Is it well with your child? And she answered, It is well. And so now, when she came to the man of God at the hill, she caught him by the feet. But Gehazi came near to push her away. But the man of God said, Let her alone. For her soul is in deep distress, and the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me. Yes, the great Elijah, God didn't tell him in advance what was going on. You know, Elijah wasn't clairvoyant. He received what God told him, and only what God told him, for the reasons, and the reasons only that God told him. You know, some people think that Christians, that we got to be clairvoyant. What, you couldn't see Ian coming? You couldn't tell your family ahead of time? I'm not a clairvoyant. 
I, I, I serve God. <laughs> He's taking care of this. He has his way in the whirlwind. I don't understand it at all. It broke my heart, to, me, to be honest with you, to see my beloved. <laughs> what is wrong with me tonight? <laughs> Good grief. I feel like, uh, yeah, whatever. Anyway. Yeah. So. So she goes to Elijah. She said, did I ask a son of my Lord? Did I not say, do not deceive me? And then he said to Gehazi, get yourself ready and take my staff in your hand and be on the way. If you meet anyone, do not greet them. And if you, anyone greets you, do not answer him. But lay my staff on the face of the child. And the mother of the child said, as the Lord lives, as Jehovah lives. Notice, that's, what she, that's the word there. As Jehovah lives... And as your soul lives, I will not leave you. And so he arose and followed her. Now Gehazi went on ahead of them and laid the staff on the face of the child, but there was neither voice nor hearing. Therefore he went back to meet him and told him, saying, The child hasn't awakened. And I think that's interesting because God didn't anoint the staff of Elijah. He anointed Elijah. And I'm glad stuff like this is in the Bible because people get fetishes about articles of things. <gasps> These are the chains of St. Peter. You know, it's like, yeah, they're, they're chains. They're made of iron. And yes, they, maybe they did shackle Peter. But is there magic in the... No, maybe could it be the faith of the person? I mean, granted, I mean, in Acts, we know that the shadow of Peter passing by and people getting healed. I get all that. But was it the shadow of Peter or was it the faith in Peter's God that they were believing in? He was just the agent in the way. He was just the point of contact. See, God knows the difference. We don't always know the difference. But there was no, nothing magical about the staff. So he went in, therefore, and shut the door behind the two of them, and he prayed to the Lord, and he went up and lay on the child and put his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes, and his hands on his hand, and he stretched himself out on the child, and the flesh of the child became warm, and he returned and walked back and forth in the house, no doubt praying profusely, and again went up and stretched himself out on him, out on him, and then the child sneezed seven times, and the child opened his eyes, and he called Gehazi and said, call this Shunammite woman, and so he called her, and when she came into him, he, he said, pick up your son, and so she went in and fell at his feet and bowed to the ground, and then she picked up her son and she went out, and you know, isn't that just a wonderful thing? You know, God had given her this child miraculously, and then the child has a heat stroke and dies at a young age, probably less than, probably not even 10 years old, maybe. And she's just like, you know, I've been waiting all my life for this. You know, I had everything, and now I had this bright light in my life, and now God takes them away, and you can almost just hear her. God says, I'm going to bring him back. Can you imagine how grateful that woman was? You could have taken all of her money away. She is now a servant of God, totally sold out, a woman with a broken heart who didn't even have the chance of having a son, and now she's got a son, and then he dies. I mean, what more, what greater grief could you have from, of not having a child to begin with, and then finally having a child, and before it's even adult, it dies? I mean, what greater grief? Did you ever find that in the Christian life, that sometimes the greatest things that that just crack you like an egg, the things that just break you in half. God is with you in it. He knows the end of it as well. He knows what he's going to accomplish at the end of that. It's greater than gold. We don't have time to go there, but I would encourage you in your Bible to, um, in your margin, write down Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5, 21, really through 42. And you see Jesus in the New Testament doing the very same thing. You know, this young girl, Jairus' daughter, she's sick and ill, and finally she dies. And then Jesus is on his way to Jairus' house, and they come back. While he's still en route to Jairus' house, somebody meets out and says, you know, the child is dead, don't even bother. So Jesus goes in there with Peter, James, and John, and they pray. And he reaches and touches this young lady and says, Talitha kumi, which means young maid, arise. 
and she arises. The Old Testament, the New Testament, you'd almost think that they were the same God. And I say that tongue-in-cheek because he is. He hasn't changed. God is a God of grace in the Old Testament as much as he's a God of grace in the New Testament. God is as much of a, a God of miracle working in the Old Testament as he is in the New Testament. He hasn't changed. The Bible says Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen? Amen. He is. He's the same. He hasn't changed one bit. He still hates sin. Is he a gracious God? Yes, he is. Is he going to judge sin? You better believe it. And we better get with the program. Especially if you don't know Christ. You need to know Christ tonight. Don't put it off. If you're driving in your car tonight, uh, and I'm talking for this may what on the radio later on. If you're in your car tonight, you pull over right now. And you, be, you bow before the great God of all creation, the one who loves you more than you can possibly imagine. Loves you so much that he give himself. Because I don't know if you remember, but God died on a cross. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, equal to God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, he is the one who died in your place. And in mind, and we're going to take communion in a few minutes to commemorate that, to remember what he did. And so Elisha returned to Gilgal, and we'll go through this pretty quickly. Elisha returned to Gilgal, and this Gilgal is just a few miles uh, northwest of Bethel. It's not Gilgal down there in the Jordan Plain next to Jericho. It's not that Gilgal. This is a Gilgal that's uh, uh, just a few miles northwest of Bethel. So Elisha returned to Gilgal, where there was a famine in the land. Now the sons of the prophets were sitting before him, and he said to his servant, Put on a large pot and boil stew for the sons of the prophets. And one of them went out into the field to gather herbs and found a wild vine and gathered from it a lap full of wild gourds and came in, sliced them into a pot of stew, though they did not know what they were. And then they served it to the men to eat. And now it happened as they were eating the stew that they cried out and said, Man of God, there is death in the pot. And they could not eat it. And so he said, then take some flour and put it in the pot and said, serve it to the people that they may eat. And there was nothing harmful in the pot. Another miracle that Elijah does. And again, the, the famine in the land was because of, no doubt, because of the Baal worship that was engulfed in Israel at that time. And I, I find a wonderful victory in this, because while everybody is suffering through the famine, God does a miracle and allows his, his, his men to eat. I love that. He never, he always cares about his own. He loves everybody, don't get me wrong. He loves the sinner, because he loves me, and I, I'm, I'm, I qualify. I'm a sinner. Anybody else here a sinner tonight? Raise your hand. <laughs> I'm a sinner. I qualify for God's salvation. So then the man came from Baal Shalisha and brought the man of God uh, the bread of the first fruits, 25, or excuse me, 20 loaves of barley bread and newly ripened grain in his knapsack. And he said, give it to the people that they may eat. Notice he didn't even think of himself. He says, give it to the people. But his servant said, what? Shall I settle, set this before 100 men? Does this sound familiar to you? Is there an event in the New Testament where this sounds familiar? And it even gets more pointed as we go along. And so, you know, Gehazi says, um, shall I set this before 100 men so little? And he said again, give it to the people that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left over. Wow, did that happen in Galilee? You better believe it. But his servants, um, and so uh, Elisha's servant Gehazi was certainly not... Uh, not a great man of faith at this time. Remember in Matthew 14 when Jesus fed the 5,000? With just a few loaves and a couple fishes. And then they, they gathered 12 fragments, 12 baskets of fragments afterwards from a few loaves and a few fish. A notable miracle. And then he does it again on, on, on the western shore of the Galilee. He does it again for another 4,000 people. Same thing happens. He can take nothing and make something. Isn't that what he did in the beginning? 
In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And God says, let there be light, or whatever. Let there be, and when he said, let there be, it was. Can any scientist at Harvard or Princeton or Oxford do that? No. And if they say, well, we're creating really great things and test it, well, use your own material that you make from scratch. Mr. Fancy Pants. But it took faith, didn't it, for the disciples to do what the Lord, to do, it took faith for Gehazi to lay that out and to do what Elisha had said. I don't get it. I don't understand. Hey, listen, if God tells us to do something and you know that he's telling you to do it, don't worry about the results. Just do it. Because even if it appears to be a failure, there's a reason for it. And it may be just to train you. But if he tells you to do something, just do it. Let him figure out the details later. He'll catch you up. He'll fill you in later in a briefing somewhere down the road. But don't worry about it. Just do what he says. If you feel him urging you at Wegmans to go speak to somebody who looks, just go over and introduce yourself. Say, you know what? My name is so-and-so, and I just saw you here. And you know what? This is going to sound crazy to you, but the Lord wanted me to say hello to you and to tell you that he loves you. People have done this. And the person cracks like an egg because they thought to themselves, if somebody doesn't come to me and give me a word of encouragement, I'm going to go home and put a gun in my temple. It's happened. And you feel that urging? Just do it. Don't worry about the results. Don't worry about the results. So he set before them and they ate and they had some left over according to the word of the Lord. And so throughout chapter 4, we saw God doing wonderful miracles through the life of Elisha. And it's also interesting that what Baal, that you think of all these droughts and these, uh, these the, you know, no food and, and everything. And yet Baal, who was the god of fertility in the Canaanite culture, was he able to help these people? No. Why? Because he's a false god. He's impotent. He has no power whatsoever. And God is saying, oh, but... I'm all-powerful, and I can make things happen, even when there is nothing, or when there's just a little bit. I can take this much oil, and I can fill jars full of oil. I can take just a few fish and a few pieces of bread, and I can make things really happen with it. And see, we have to believe that now. Ask the Lord. Say, Lord, increase my faith. Increase my faith. Prepare me. Help me not to always be so quick to run to my vices, but to just wait upon you. If we could have Sarah come on up, and we're going to take communion together. And Jesus, you remember in the upper room just hours before he'd be crucified, he took the bread and the cup and he passed it to his disciples. And what would have been a normal Passover meal, he did something at the end of it that never had been done before. He equates the, the bread and the wine with his body and blood. And so we'll, we'll take a look at that. But as Sarah leads us in a song of worship, just come on up and grab the elements and bring them back to your uh, chair and we'll take them together, okay? Paul, speaking to the Corinthians, he says this in chapter 11, uh, beginning in verse 23, he says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you, do this in remembrance of me. So let's do that. Let's take the bread together. And in the same manner, he also took the cup after supper. And back at that time, he had the, uh, the grail, the one that everyone's, that Indiana Jones has been looking for. They had a, a, a cup, a single cup. with wine in it, they passed it around to each of them. 
He said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. New covenant. The new will and testament of my blood. And he says, this do as often as you drink, do it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. And so let's do that. Let's take the the cup. Isn't it wonderful to have communion together? Think of where in the world we, we could do this like this, you know. I mean, think of a, any business, any, anything in the world where people gather together. Is there anything more intimate than what we've just done? And even back in the Old Testament, back in ancient times, Having a meal with somebody was one of the most intimate things you could do. And, and there was something significant about the way they take the bread. I mean, they had a loaf of bread. And those guys at that table, you know, it wasn't these, you know, hermetically sealed things that are all nice and sterile, and, you know, COVID certified. I say that with a wink, okay. They just grabbed the bread. I mean, think about that, how that'd be today if we just grabbed a couple of loaves and just tossed them out and just tear off a piece and hand it to your neighbor but that's what they did. I'm not saying that we're going to do that, but, but there was something about the, the intimacy of that because when you take those elements and you take them into you, what could be more intimate than something being in the middle of you? It's like where your heart resides. You're taking the, the body of Christ symbolically and, the, and the, the, the cup and you're taking that in into the innermost part of your being and you're not just saying, that, well, I, I just do this because that's what we do. No, we're, we're, we're doing this together because we believe in him and what he did on the cross. See, this wouldn't make any sense to me if I'm an unbeliever. That's why we encourage people who don't know Christ, don't, don't bother taking communion until you know Christ. It's not going to kill you, although they had problems in the first century with people doing it, on, on, you know, not taking it worthily, and they, some of them died even. But as believers, we ought to take it because we believe in who Jesus is. Everything he said, everything he did, we believe what his death meant, what it accomplished on the cross because we are the benefactors of it, the beneficiaries of what Christ has done and it's going to last forever, folks. I want to encourage you in that because no matter what you're going through and we'll end, no matter what you're going through, no matter what these next few, this next month is going to throw at us and it's going to get pretty crazy. Don't lose your peace. And as I say that to you, I got three fingers pointing back at me, warning me three times as much. Keep my eyes focused on Christ. Certainly do everything you can do here, but regardless of the outcome, you keep your eyes on him. Amen? Amen. And let's stand together, let's pray. Lord, we thank you uh, for tonight. Thank you for this passage, Lord, how it challenged us. And uh, Lord, just be with us tonight as we go and keep us safe. Lord, bless our day tomorrow, Lord, and just fill us with your spirit and prepare us for things we can't even understand, Lord. And and we know that you are, and we ask that you would. And we pray that, Lord, you'd increase our faith too, Lord. And and, uh, I pray that you would blow literally the minds of, of all of us in this church at Calvary Chapel of Rochester, I pray that you would do something so wonderful that we would even, for years later, should you tarry, we'll look back and say, I, I'm so blown by what you did, Lord. Would you please do it? Whatever it is you want to do. And it's all for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. amen.